Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And I want to start with a question that might sound kind of simple. Why generally do we not build statues of people who are still alive? Now, I know sometimes we do. You got the bronze fawns. Yeah. And Henry Winkler is still out there. In, I believe in New Zealand, there is a statue of Richard O'Brien uh, as Riff Raff from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And, of course, uh, there's the statue of RoboCop, which... <laughs> I, I don't know if I knew about this one. <laughs> no, wait, maybe that doesn't exist yet. Maybe oh, that's only people okay. want there to be a statue of RoboCop in Detroit. Oh, or does it exist? I'm not sure if that's been realized. Huh. In any case, RoboCop lives on in all our hearts forever, so there could never be a statue of him. But even these are fictional characters. Even the Richard O'Brien one is a picture of Richard O'Brien as a fictional character. Yeah, uh, there are a few cases where people build statues of people who are still alive. It doesn't happen that often, and it always strikes me as really just not smart and (laughs) distasteful. I don't know if you get the same feeling. Like, if you just see a statue of a living person, it's like, what? Ugh. Yeah, I mean, because there are a few different factors that come into play. First of all, if I'm asking someone or commissioning a statue of myself, there are... There's some, you know, you're just asking for charges of uh, narcissism and, uh, you know, you think you're a golden god or something because right. you're having this large golden version of you, you know, uh, erected in town. No, and, I just think I'm a marble god. <laughs> or and the other side, too, is we've seen enough, uh, we've seen, we've seen enough examples of this throughout history, particularly in the, the fall of the Soviet Union, to know that if there is a statue of you, then that is something that someone can deface mm-hmm. or knock down. Uh, it's, you're just asking for it. Yeah, I would say one large exception to what I'm talking about is in, like, dictatorships, uh, where, mm-hmm. yeah, there will be statues of a living leader. Yeah, but, but I mean, these are examples, though, where they should feel bad, but they are removed from the guilt of feeling bad because of the uh, depravity of the system. Yeah, but so then you agree with my intuition there? Is is that the case? You, you just think, like, when you see a statue of a person who's still alive, it's like, what? Why would you do that? Yeah, okay, because the other thing, too, is... Maybe you're going to have a perfect likeness of that individual, but it also <laughs> may come off as a little creepy because you're going to see it like right next to the person or or it's it's easier to compare the flesh to the statue and realize the statue is inaccurate. Yeah. So what does the answer there tell us about what purpose statues serve? I don't know. Maybe we can come back to that. I got another weird question. Why are statues considered inherently positive or honorific? Another way of asking this is, why do we generally only create statues of people mm-hmm. we like? How come we don't generally create statues of people who we think were evil and destructive or shifty or, you know, just not honorable people? And it's one of those things that's so ingrained that it just seems obvious, like, well, duh, you know, you wouldn't put up a statue to honor a bad person. But why do you assume a statue carries honor with it. You don't assume that about other forms of media. You could make a movie about a bad person and people wouldn't assume that it was honoring that person. You could write a book about a bad person and people wouldn't assume that the book was honoring that person. But if you were to build a statue of that person, people mm-hmm. would say, well, why do you like this guy so much? Well, I think a lot of this, I think we can answer a couple of questions here by dealing with, with, the, with the idea of what happens when you just erect a tombstone for someone. Mm-hmm. You you are creating something that is not going to fade. I mean, 
yes, it's going to fade. But but within the the context of a human lifetime, it seems fixed. It seems uh, uh, you know unmovable and incorruptible. And so, in, to create a statue of an individual is to create an immortal version of them. Uh, and, to like and, impose that person's legacy on physical space, right? Either after their death, or you know, in the case of say a mythological figure or a figure of such deep history that they're you know far removed, like you don't have photos of them, you just have tales of them. It makes them more real. Yeah, you know. I mean, I I just wonder why. I mean, it might it might be totally an accident of history. Maybe it's just a coincidence that, well, okay, so people used to make statues of of leaders who were to be honored and statues of kings and all that, and we just came to associate statuary with honor and, and honorific feelings. Well, now I have to say there are, of course, protective – the idea of using horrifying but protective entities, say, in a tomb or a temple. Right. You could have – essentially, it's a monster. It's something horrifying, but it's there to ward off evil spirits. Well, right, and that, that comes into the religious function of statuary. So mm-hmm. you've got statues that uh, were – yeah, I, I was going to say that you can imagine religious scenarios where people have statues of demons and other unwelcome supernatural entities – uh, either for instructive purposes or as, for protective purposes, you know, apotropaic magic. Yeah. Um, or just to be scary. Uh, so yeah, you can see religious reasons why people put up statues of things judged to be evil. But, but could you imagine a scenario where someone might say, look, we're not putting up a statue of Richard Nixon, but we'll put up multiple Richard Nixon statues to protect this sacred ground. <laughs> You know, like like purely protective evils, uh, if you will. Right. You, you what you bring up yet again is this assumption. If I made a statue of Richard Nixon, people would assume I liked him. People yeah. would assume I thought he was a good guy. Right. Would yeah. not be the case if I wrote a book about him or made a movie about him. I mean, depending on what the contents were. Right. And again, this is assuming it's just a statue of him and he's not being, say, crushed under the foot of a Hindu deity or something like that. Exactly right. Uh, That's another great image. Because I think what we're talking about here in most of these examples, it's it's not a statue of an individual doing something Mm -hmm. as much as it's a statue of the individual, just their identity, their presence, their existence. Yeah, and so maybe for some inherent reasons we haven't figured out or maybe for reasons of historical uh, accident or whatever, statuary, I think, does have a religious connotation. Yeah. And therefore, it's no surprise that some of the grandest statues in the world, of course, are religious. Yeah. If you look at a, at a list of the largest statues currently in the world, most of them are going to be religious uh, in scope. You'll find a few historic individuals in there, but uh, really like the, the top the top 10 list are mostly Buddhists. And uh, today we're going to be talking about one of the, the grandest Buddhas. Uh, that you, statues that you'll find out there, and that is the uh, uh, Lisan Gra- Giant Buddha or the Grand Buddha located in uh, southern Sichuan uh, province in southwest China. So I thought it was interesting that you wanted to do this episode, Robert. What, what, what was it that drew you to the, the Lishan Buddha? Well, I'd seen uh, images of it before, and weirdly, en- weirdly enough to, uh, to just throw in an unintended plug for another uh, podcast, but uh, I was in the car and uh, was listening to the Wow in the World podcast, which is a you know, uh, an NPR science education uh, podcast for children. Mm-hmm. 
And they had like a, a kid throw in a quick fact about something that they learned on a trip, right? Mm-hmm. So it's like a, you know, kid on the street kind of situation. And the kid mentioned, uh, the, uh, the Lashan giant Buddha. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and it kind of reminded me of its existence and, and, and one of the, the cool facts about it that we'll get to in a bit. And, uh, yeah. And then I started looking into it a little more and said, Hey, well, there's a whole episode here we should talk about the Lashan giant Buddha. So if you are at a computer right now mm-hmm. and you are listening to this episode where you can Google something, you should probably go ahead and Google a picture of it, right? Yes. Uh, to try to have this in your mind if you've never seen it before. If you can't do that, that's okay. We'll try to describe it for you. Yeah, we'll definitely have some images of it on the landing page for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. But it looks like a giant Buddha has uh, has carved out a niche in a mountain and is seated there within the mountain. Like, so basically the the Buddha is a mountain, the mountain is the Buddha to uh to steal the like the common slogan from the region. And the Buddha is literally made out of the mountain. Yes, carved out of the side of the mountain. Uh but in a way that you know when when you when you I think for a lot of western audiences when you think of something carved out of a mountain you think of our more local examples. You think of Mount Rushmore, mm-hmm. maybe you think of Stone Mountain here in Georgia or you think of Crazy Horse, right? Right. Uh, but this one, th- this is, this one feels a lot different from any of those examples because mm-hmm. it's, it does feel, it, it almost feels like there was a Buddha in the mountain and they just carved it out. Like it was waiting there for, uh, for all of this, uh, th- th- this, uh, the sculpture work to free it. Absolutely. Those other things you mentioned, like Mount Rushmore, feel very much imposed on the landscape. Mm-hmm. They're a thing laid over the landscape. And I feel like the, the Buddha in, in Lashan, is either it's like it emerged from the landscape or is being absorbed by the landscape. It almost feels like, yeah, you found it. Like it's the, like, like it's a fossil Buddha. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's a great metaphor, dude. It is very much like that. One thing we should say though is, okay, so you imagine something that's carved out of a mountain or, uh, or might be like a fossil. You're probably not thinking very big. This thing is big. It's huge. Yeah, it is 71 meters or 233 feet tall. And it's, it's, you know, it's in a seated position. It's not mm-hmm. standing. I actually, I, I don't think I ran across any estimates on how, how tall this Buddha would be if it were standing full height somehow. I should have done the math on that. Yeah. Missed opportunity. If the Ghostbusters were to, uh, you know, charge it with enough, uh, ectoplasm and make it walk around. Right. Yeah. That, but that's somebody else's research project. We'll leave them to it. Now the other uh, remarkable thing about it is that this is a, a this is a very old statue. Uh-huh. Uh, this was uh, this was a, a Tang Dynasty uh, construction, so that's uh, twelve hundred years ago, and it is the uh, the largest stone Buddha in the world, and currently it's the eighteenth tallest statue in the world. Uh, number one, by the way, is China's uh, Spring Temple Buddha at a towering. 128 meters or 420 feet. Now, how many of those top 20 or so are Richard Nixon's? Um, no, none of them, actually. But several of them are Buddhas or uh, some are uh, Bodhisattvas. And uh, I think in one uh, particular of particular note uh, is uh, two ch- famed Chinese uh, emperors. But uh, but also the vast majority of them are from uh, are from recent times mm-hmm. uh, of, of the taller statues in the world. All of them were completed in the 20th or 21st century. The Grand Buddha, however, again, was finished in 803 uh, CE. And this thing looks old. As we said, it's like a fossil. So it's a cliff coming straight out of the river, just shooting straight up out of the uh, the Dadu River. And 
away from the, it's like a red stone cliff. You can see this orange tinge in the white. Uh, and then back away from the cliff, there is this recession. Mm-hmm. Um, and within the recession is, I don't know, you don't really see a throne or anything. It might be hidden back there behind all of the growth that's come out over the years. But you, you do see the figure of the Buddha seated with his knees spread apart, his back very straight and his hands resting on his knees. And the, the entire statue, like we said, is carved into the side of the mountain, receding away from the cliff face. And so the Buddha is looking out over the river as if he's sort of like lording over the waters mm-hmm. and the waters are rushing by just underneath his feet. How would you describe his face, Robert? I would say it's very calm. It's calm, serene, almost uh, disinterested in a, in a way that he does remind me of a YMCA lifeguard. Yeah. <laughs> like he's watching over the waters and and I'm not sure how interested he is in me not drowning. Yeah, uh, th- this is not one of the laughing Buddhas. No, and we'll get into exactly what kind of Buddha he is in a minute. But certainly the just the scale of this thing is amazing from the photos. I I I have not been to see this in person and I, mm-hmm. and I would love to hear from any of our listeners out there who have because it is a huge tourist attraction. Uh, uh people traveling to the area, you know, go out of their way to to see this and the surrounding uh historic temple and even, you know, natural uh, attractions in the area. But you just you look at this and you just see how small the individuals are. And in comparison to the feet to the toes right. of this statue right there are people standing on the base where the buddha's feet are and they're not even as tall as the buddha's sandal right uh you know i think for western audiences especially especially for american audiences like when we think of a giant statue of course we think of the statue of liberty mm-hmm. but then how big would the statue of liberty be compared to the Lausan buddha well so there are multiple ways you can measure the Statue of Liberty. Now, if you measure the full thing, like with the base up to the top of the torch, it's bigger than the Lashan Buddha. But if you just look at the copper part of the statue, from her heel to the top of her head, Lady Liberty is just over 111 feet. So if she put her arm down, you could stand one Lady Liberty on the shoulders of another one and still not be as tall as the Lashan Buddha. Wow. Now, it's, it's always difficult to, to gauge these things, though, just as a viewer, because you see Lady Liberty up there, you know, no, you don't see any humans really in reference to it, unless right. you're, you know, dealing with the Ghostbusters uh, in Ghostbusters 2. Uh, otherwise, it's easy to lose, lose, uh, you know, scope of what its scale is. Whereas with the Lasan Buddha, you tend to see individuals at its base, so you have kind of a, a grounding in how big it, it appears to be. So this is supposed to be a Buddha, Robert. Tell me about the Buddha. All right. Well, yeah, we should break down exactly what a Buddha is. So well, wait, I thought you should say something like, I can't tell you about the Buddha. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm sure there's some cla- like, like, you know, if someone goes to tell you about the Buddha, don't let them tell you about the Buddha. Sort of if you meet the Buddha, kill the Buddha yeah. kind of a thing. But um, there are different Buddhas, and that's an important thing to note. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's easy to, to miss to to not be aware of if you're just kind of you see statues and you just assume that these are all statues of the same individual, um, historic or mythical, and it's just different artistic takes. Right. And there are a, a number of different uh, artistic takes on these Buddhas. But for starters, you have what's known as the historical Buddha, Siddhartha Gautama, who lived in the 5th century BCE. Uh, exact century kind of varies depending on uh, you know who's telling. But this would have been ancient India. And the story is that uh, he was a prince, you know, lived a life of luxury, and then he began to behold uh, 
the, uh, the you know the sorrow of the world, the suffering in the world, and he abandoned his riches. He became a monk in order to uh, seek enlightenment, and uh, his teachings then spread throughout most of Asia in the centuries to follow. Now, interestingly enough, it actually declined in India itself during the Middle Ages with the rise of Islam, but it, it flourished elsewhere, including in China. Uh, where it made its way in there around uh, 100 BCE and subsequently became uh, an integral part of Chinese culture. And uh, Buddhism uh, today remains the, the fourth largest religion in the world. Now, I think I'm to understand that throughout history at different times, the adoption of Buddhism in China has been a controversial thing, right? Like there were times when uh, when Chinese ruling dynasties were trying to enforce other beliefs, like they might say that people need to be Taoist or people need to be Confucian, right? Yes, certainly, because when you when you look at the history of China, of course, you have essentially three key worldviews that are you know getting into the mix. There, you have you have Buddhism, you have Taoism, and you have Confucianism, mm-hmm. and uh, and it's kind of like a continual you know cocktail. To what degree are these uh, these uh, meshed together? Uh, in, a, in an individual uh, time and an individual region. Now, to come back to uh, the Lishan Buddha, the, the, what makes this interesting is that the first Chinese Buddhist temple was built in Sichuan province uh, on the summits of Mount Emi. And this is the, the very area, the very region in which the Grand Buddha was carved. Now, maybe we should take a quick break, and when we come back, we can get a little bit into the history of how this Grand Buddha was constructed uh, more than 1,200 years ago. All right, we're back. So uh, there's an origin story here, as there always is. Yeah, and maybe we should say, as as many origins, uh, if you go back far enough, there's a flood in the story somewhere, right? <laughs> yes. Except in this case, it's more of a pattern of flooding, right? And this is a historical fact that's not just part of the mythology. The central and, and southwest region of China is prone to lots of flooding, right? Yeah. I mean, we ended up discussing some of this in our Great Flood episode. We talked about Chinese, uh, the Chinese variant of the, the Great Flood myth and the importance of, of water uh, management and manipulation in Chinese history. Yeah. So it's like a, it's a humid, uh, I think, subtropical climate, mm-hmm. but the, they'll have monsoon seasons uh, where the rains come in and there, there will be heavy rains that cause flooding in these plains areas. R- refresh me a little bit on the, on the Chinese flood myth, Robert. Oh, well, you're talking about the, the story of you, the great. Yeah. Where, um, essentially you just have, um, you have this, this flood that occurs and, uh, and who is going to, uh, Who's going to, to deal with it? How are we going to, to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. Instead of the, the creation of an ark or you know a great boat, you have uh, you the great who uses uh, uh, you know the knowledge of canal systems and uh, and drainage systems as a way to uh, to manage the flooding. Oh, that's a much better solution than a boat, right? Yeah, that yeah. like works for more than one group of people. Yeah, I think so. I, I think there's probably something uh, culturally telling about about uh, that as well. Like it's a it's a very it's a particularly Chinese uh, uh, take on the problem, but also ties in with with very you know real world uh, uh, issues of the day, which would have been uh, you know seasonal flooding. Yeah, so there is seasonal flooding in this area. That sometimes the rivers will swell, and this can be a danger to the people who work in or, in or around the river. Um, and this this ties into where the Buddha came from. That's right. So the the origin story, the basic version, goes as follows: You have a Buddhist monk named Hai Tong. 
and he conceives this uh, this project around 713 CE. So his idea is, look, we have we have really turbulent waters out here on the the Dadu River. Uh, it's really rough on uh, on boatmen, uh, navigation. People are drowning. Uh, mm-hmm. It's uh, it's it's influenced by uh, by these seasonal floods. If we're were to build a Buddha here, then that would bring like fortune to the area. Like that would bring a calming influence on uh, on the, these turbulent waters, where you, you ultimately have uh, the the confluence of, of three different rivers: the Mingjiang, the Dadu, and the the Qingyi rivers. Yeah, and in reading about this, I came across what appears to be some kind of popular legend about Haitong's quest to get the Buddha built. This was good, so I had to repeat it, but I want to. But I want to stress, this is the best I can synthesize from scattered and discrepant telling. So this is probably probably legendary, might not even be an old legend. Who knows if this was created recently. But here's what people are saying. Uh, so Haitong, in this story, knew that it would cost a lot of money to get the Buddha built. And he traveled far and wide, soliciting alms for the construction. And slowly over time, he built up a fund. He managed to get together enough money for the stoneworks and the carving. But at some point in the project, Haitong was called to an audience with a corrupt government official, uh, with a Richard Nixon, you know, who told him, Haitong, it's time to hand over the funds. And Haitong said, I'd rather give up my eyes than give up the great Buddha. And when the corrupt official pressed him to give him the money, Haitong gouged out his own eyes or one of his own eyes and threw them at the official's feet. And supposedly this got the guy to leave him alone. Now, I, I, again, with my warning, I've seen various versions of this story told and retold across sources, but I can't locate an authoritative original source from this. So I'm going to file this under probably legendary, whether it's an old legend or a recent creation is unclear. And I think that even if it is even if it is a recent uh, addition to the legend, uh, this will be something that ties in to our, our further discussions of the Buddha here in a bit. Okay. Now, earlier I talked about well, we mentioned Siddhartha Gautama as the historic Buddha, and I alluded to the existence of other Buddhas uh, that are that are important as well. So let, let's go ahead and get that out of the way. Uh, this is not a statue. the The Grand Buddha here is not a statue of Gautama. Uh, so it's not trying to be a depiction of that historical guy. Correct. So while Gautama is the historic Buddha, uh, Buddhism recognizes many different Buddhas. For instance, in uh, uh, Theravada Buddhism, there are 27 Buddhas who preceded Gautama. Then you also have other important Buddhas, like the Medicine Buddha is tremendously important. If you've uh, ever been to the the uh, the, the Met in New York, mm-hmm. uh, in their uh, Asian section, they have an enormous uh uh, mural on the wall, and it depicts the medicine Buddha. Uh-huh. And then we have uh, the Buddha that is actually depicted here, and that is uh, Maitreya, the Buddha of the future. Oh, boy. Yeah. This is a, a really exciting Buddha. And uh, some of you might remember some mention of Maitreya from the self-embalming uh, Buddhist monks episode we did a while back. and That, that has to do with a, a Japanese practice, but uh, it also involved uh, Maitreya. So a- according to some traditions, Maitreya is going to come to Earth 5.6 billion years in the future. And until then... Whoa, he, whoa, 5.6 billion? Yes. Is there still going to be an Earth in 5.6 billion years? 
there's going to be something <laughs> that, that Maitreya can visit. So I don't know. You can go kind of sci-fi crazy with this in a minute. Like maybe we're all living on a on a spaceship, a colony ship at that point. But Maitreya will find us. Oh, okay. That's that's my read on it. Well, uh, he is the rate. Buddha of the future. Exactly. So until he's needed, he's going to reside in the in the, in a in a, in a heaven, uh, sort of a. a a, a Buddhist heaven that's uh, set aside from our reality, mm-hmm. and uh, and you can sort of think of him as a, a Buddha Messiah, uh, I suppose, and that he'll he'll eventually bring Dharma back to a far future world that has mostly forgotten it. Hmm. So it's pretty exciting. Maitreya factors into a number of different uh, artistic depictions. So if you go to a museum of uh, a museum of, of Buddhist art or or, uh, or Asian art, there's a very good chance you will encounter Maitreya uh, at least a few times. What is the most commonly depicted Buddha? Do you know? You know, it's gonna, it's gonna depend, I think. Uh, like, I've, I have to admit that when I was, when I was younger, I definitely fell into the category of thinking there was just a Buddha. And you would see, oh, sometimes Buddha is, is, you know, fat and happy. And sometimes Buddha is starved and, uh, and kind of uh, solemn looking. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are gonna be, there are gonna be different, uh, emphasis in different, uh, cultures. And then sometimes things we might casually think of as being Buddhas are actually bodhisattvas, which is kind of, you know, a, a notch lower. Or and then sometimes they're, they're depictions of important, uh, you know, monk figures. Hmm. But I know that you, you do encounter Maitreya, the medicine Buddha, and, and uh, the historic Buddha, uh, Gautama, quite a bit. So the grand Buddha here, uh, this depiction of Maitreya, it, uh, it, it is eventually completed. Ninety years after it started, by that point, uh, Hai Tong has uh, has died, mm-hmm. and uh, and the the story about the blinding, even if that didn't happen uh, exactly um, as as the story indicates, it does seem that there were there were points where funding stalled out, where work ceased, and thus this uh, this long uh, process of actually finishing the statue. But of course, now that it's finished, we really do have kind of a. a would you call it a, a sort of wonder of the world on our hands? Yeah, I mean that's an important thing to keep in mind uh, when you because we often think of what the, the seven wonders of the world, right? Um, of and the ancient world, of the ancient world, and yeah. of course they were based on knowledge of the ancient world by uh, by individuals at the time, which tended to exclude uh, anything that was happening uh, in Asia. It right. Was, it, it was confined to a different region of the world. And, and a number of those things aren't even around anymore. Uh, there are even questions about whether some of them existed to begin with. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've long thought we should just, we should do an episode or a series of episodes on each of the, uh, the seven wonders of the ancient world and discuss like what they, what they were slash are, mm-hmm. what happened to them and, uh, and, and why people were so invested in them at the, at the time. But, but that's for another episode. Yeah. It, but if you were to, to actually take in the, the, the wonders of the world, and uh, and do a complete um, you know overview and take in all regions of the earth. I feel like the the Lashan Buddha would 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 have to be on there because it's a tremendous work of sculpture, and the body contain actually contains a drainage system to uh, prevent uh, weathering to a certain extent. So there are spiral coils and uh, cross drainage systems like built into its surface that help to drain water away from it. And again, this is because this is a, a, an area that is. Uh, it's frequented by seasonal flooding, uh, tremendous uh, uh, rainfall, and it's a very temperate climate. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, if Hai Tong's goal was to calm the angry river gods and uh, put a Buddha in there to pacify the, uh, the, the hateful waters of the river in, mm-hmm. in the rain season, 
uh, did it work? Well, that's one of the the really fascinating uh, aspects of this story is that, uh, according to to many, it did work. Now, how did it work? Well, that's that's where it gets interesting. The, if, it, if it actually worked in calming the waters uh, beneath its gaze, the likely reason for this is probably uh, because you had o- over the decades you had all of this excavation, and this is dumping so much uh, surplus rock into the river hollows below hmm. that it actually has an effect on the the flow of the river like you're is you're remaking the mountain you're remake you're remaking the environment uh surrounding the mountain and in doing so you're remaking the river you're sort of inadvertently um altering the flow of the river huh now i have some skepticism there because the river's huge yeah i mean it's if you see pictures of it as a gigantic waterway uh so i would think it would take a great amount of deposits to change the river fundamentally. I can believe more that it would change like local areas of the river. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that it, when I think the individuals who are making that, that argument are, are definitely focusing like on the, the filling in of, of hollows within the river yeah. and, and affecting the very localized uh, nature of it. I think if you get into anything beyond that, then you're getting into kind of magical mythic thinking. You know, oh, we built a statue so big that the surplus rock, you know, changed the earth. Right. All right. So when we first started out this episode, we asked the question, why would you build a statue? And the best answer I think we could come up with is you want you want this idea or this person to uh, to last forever, to to live forever. Right. And so in building the Grand Buddha, the idea is, yeah, this is going to be around for a long time. Maybe it's even going to be long enough uh, that uh, the actual Maitreya can visit it and say, hey, that's me up there. But as it turns as, as the I don't think the statue is going to make it five billion years. I don't th- I don't think it is either, because because that's the thing about any kind of stonework, any kind of sculpture is that. Yes, they do tend to last longer than living human beings. But in is when you when you start having this thing live within geologic time, uh, you know, don't expect a whole lot because right. you have all of these uh, eroding effects in the natural world, and they're not going to leave your statue alone just because it's not technically a mountain anymore. Right. I mean, there used to be continents in places where there now are not continents, and vice versa. Uh, the earth, the face of the earth is constantly changing. And so uh, while a, a stone statue might last a very long time, uh, probably much longer than many other creations of humankind, it's not going to last forever. Right. You're going to have you can have wind. You're going to have rain. Uh, you're going to have uh, also an issue with uh, with sculptures. You're going to have, uh, you know, plant life growing in on it, in it, around it. Which I would now say is one of the coolest features of the Grand Buddha. Yeah. If you see pictures of it. It's not only receding into the mountain, so in this hollow in the cliff face, but it's also got all this green coming out around it. Uh, so it, it's being absorbed by the landscape in more ways than one. It's sinking into the mountain or emerging from a recess in the mountain, but it's also emerging from the biosphere almost or sinking into the biosphere. Oh, yeah. I mean, it adds the natural natural wonder of it. But on, on, at the same level, it's kind of like having a bunch of, say, English ivy grow up the side of your house. On one level, it looks really nice, but on the other, you have plants like growing on and into your your stonework. Mm-hmm. Um, now, another imp- important factor here is we mentioned how many that a lot of people go to it. This is a popular tourist destination. Uh, I was uh, reading in uh, a Lonely Planet guide for China that uh, if you're going to visit the Grand Buddha, you, it's best not to even try to go on a weekend or a holiday because the stairs around it become so packed with tourists that you can't even move. It just comes to a standstill. 
Now, of course, anytime you got lots of people visiting something, that's going to be a risk to the preservation of it. People touching things, mm-hmm. people, hopefully they're not going to be able to touch too much of it here because you can't get out there and climb on his nose. Um, but yeah, I mean, somehow exposure to people, I think it's going to start wearing at you. Yeah. And the human erosion takes place. Another thing I just have to mention now that you, you, you talked about, uh, tourists arriving is I watched a homemade video on YouTube that I found of a family visiting the Buddha at a time when there was intense flooding in the river just under. So like the waters were rushing by and they were rising up to just below the platform where the Buddha's feet are. Mm -hmm. And this family paid somebody to get them out to the statue, even though it was dangerous weather and it was flooding. And there's this video on YouTube of them just walking around with almost nobody there. Oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah, that is apparently not the usual scene on a, on a weekend at the Grand Buddha. Now, on top of natural erosion, human erosion, there's also the uh, added threat of pollution, which we'll we'll get into a little bit more in a bit. But yeah, you have uh, you, with the uh, with the with the, the rise and continued rise of an of industrialized uh, human civilization, mm-hmm. you're going to have uh, n- both natural and man-made uh, features of the earth that are going to be affected by uh, by by all the resulting pollution. Yeah, in particular, there's a there's like a blackening that occurs on some of these statues. So you'll have your you know your 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 statue of of uh, of a Buddha, and then uh, over time, like there's like a blackening of the nose, as if mm-hmm. you know as if the nose is rotting away or something. And uh, you know, at the very least, it's it's not maybe not the artist's intention right. for the for the sculpture. I hate to see that happen to this great old work of art, but that's also kind of cool. So I was uh, I was reading about um, preservation uh, for this uh, for this Buddha and other uh, like sacred sites, uh, uh, various uh, uh, sculptures in China. There was uh, an article titled "Conservation of Ancient Sites on the Silk Road: Proceedings of an International Conference on Conservation of Grotto Sites." And this was these were symposium proceedings by one uh, Neville Agnew. This was published in uh, 1997, so it's uh, it's a slightly older uh, overview, but it still has a, a lot of uh, important details. Mm-hmm. So, in particular, concerning the Grand Buddha, he mentions that that uh, this sculpture benefited from multiple restorations over the years. So uh, we're not really seeing the original version of it now, right? That's something to keep in mind. Uh, so. Just going back to the, the earliest traces that, that he references in his article. So if you go back to the Qing Dynasty, that's uh, 1636 through 1912. Documents indicate that the sculpture was heavily damaged at the time. So it had cavities in the face. Kind of like the Sphinx or something. Yeah, it was just it had it had, you know, the upkeep had not prevented the face from kind of crumbling apart in places. Uh-huh. And then uh, by the time you come to the Republic of China era, that's 1912 through 1949, uh, photos show that it had been inaccurately restored. So they'd fixed – this is a problem where th- there are holes in the face, then you fix the face, and well, now the face looks a little different than it did before. Then uh, by the 1960s, you have uh, significant maintenance that's taking place. It's altering the nose, the eyes, the mouth, and the lower jaw of the Buddha. And uh, Agnew argues that in light of all of this, it might – Perhaps be better not to restore the Buddha at all. Like if you were, if you're essentially each time you're restoring it, you're kind of making it a little different. You're making it new each time. Mm -hmm. Like, are you actually preserving an ancient statue, or are you, or are you, you know, keeping up a a modern statue that's sort of based on the base of uh, something old? Yeah, I I think that's a common question in restoration. Actually, I mean, uh, 
you're always going to have deterioration. And is it better to allow things to deteriorate and let people see them in that state or to falsely alter them to restore them? Well, you know, uh, I mean, w- which is more authentic? Yeah, like, for instance, in, in the West, uh, the Parthenon is an example of this. So the Parthenon is severely damaged. But there is, there's a history to that damage. You can, I mean, yeah. it's a fascinating history, uh, in terms of who has, uh, who has ownership at, at a given time, the very, the, 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 the violence that's been, uh, that, that has occurred there, uh, uh et cetera. We could get into the, the whole history in another, another podcast, but, but there is, a, you know, an ongoing discussion. Well, do you, do you completely restore the Parthenon and then cre- create this kind of new thing that is based on the old model and certainly an attempt to, to rebuild the old Parthenon? Or do you maintain what's currently there and tell the story of how we got there? My my answer would be, anybody out there listening, if I can make the decision, you okay. leave it how it is, uh-huh. but then you build a copy of it somewhere else. So like with the Parthenon, we've got the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee. Oh, that's true, yes. And I think that's not a bad approach. You know, you, uh, you, you let it be as it is and let time take it and let's see what time has done to it. But then you do your best to create a model of what it would have been like in another place. Now, I, I will point out that with the Grand Buddha in the late 1990s, you did see an increased focus on the best ways to restore the Buddha, but do so in ways that were both scientifically and historically sound. So like, I'm essentially reaching the point where you realize, OK, what can we do that will you know, maintain what we have uh, help protect it, restore areas that are damaged, but also be true to the the history of the sculpture. Mm-hmm. So in uh, in 2001, according to, to Reuters News, there was actually uh, uh, a 250 million won or 33.6 million restoration project that took place at the Buddha. But by uh, 2007, the nose had actually blackened uh, again due to pollution. Uh-huh. And concerns over pollution actually prompted local government uh, – the local government to shut down factories and power plants close to the statue to help maintain it, which I think is a, you know, a positive movement. Like uh, you know, people realizing, look, if we we have to we have to actually cut down on the we have to so- tackle the pollution problem if we uh, we want uh, these uh, these artifacts to, to to remain presentable. I feel like that is not usually the uh, solution you hear. Yeah, is shutting down heavy industry to protect. Uh, you know, her- heritage monuments or uh, or the environment. Well, uh, the Reuters article, you know, touches on the fact that this, you know, this was not an isolated problem. China right. was a step was encountering this with with numerous, uh, you know, sacred and important historical sites, various shrines, etc. Right. But hey, it's still there. It's uh, it's still open, and it is a, a popular tourist des- destination. And uh, based yeah. on what I was reading, you know, you, you can spend a good half day there, uh, looking at uh, at additional sites, temples, and the natural environment is uh, is supposedly uh, really pleasant as well. Yeah, if you see pictures of it, one of the things you'll notice is this tiny narrow staircase carved into the cliffside beside the Buddha, going up the side of it. So I guess people can get up higher to be be near its face, um, and it. I mean, one thing that's clear is how many people want to come see this this beautiful work of art, but also they're so tiny. Yes. And the, they look so precarious when you see these long shots of the giant Buddha. Not that the Buddha would do this, but you can imagine it would just sort of like swing its hand up and like knock hundreds of people into the <laughs> river. Well, yeah, you can't help but think of that when you see a, a colossal stone titan right. uh, in the likeness of a man. 
All right, we're going to take uh, one more break, and we come back. Uh, we just have a, a few additional thoughts about, to a certain extent, the Grand Buddha, but also just this idea of uh, of remaking the Earth, and then what happens when we do. So I think one of the most uh, compelling aspects of the Grand Buddha is that we see the mountain transformed into a human likeness, and in doing so, there are all of these ramifications uh, to the natural environment. So there's the the alleged uh, alteration of the river, mm-hmm. the alteration of drainage on the mountain. And, of course, uh, you know, these are just small and specific examples of, of what human beings have done uh, just across the uh, uh, the Anthropocene epoch, the, mm-hmm. the idea that since the rise of, of, of agriculture, really, but certainly in the industrial age as well, we have just reshaped the earth, and in doing so, we have changed the natural environment. That makes me wonder, I mean, how, do, how the Buddha plays into that metaphor. What do you think is the general, uh, and you might not know the answer, but what, what do you think is the general environmental outlook of Buddhism? Is there a coherent one? Well, I, I know for a fact, I think I might have mentioned this uh, on a previous uh, episode, but there was, there was a, a wonderful New York Times article that came out uh, in recent weeks about a resurgence of uh, religious interest in China specifically, so it's people turning not not just to Buddhism but also Taoism and Confucianism, and uh, in sort of reclaiming uh, culturally important Chinese uh, religious models, mm-hmm. they're also taking on environmental causes. So they are they are finding an the, an environmental message in Buddhism, in Taoism, in Confucianism, and then uh, becoming active with that within uh, within uh, you know within China and uh, and and arguing for. Uh, you know, environmental protective measures. It's hard not to see the Buddha as somehow more harmonious with nature in this uh, in this depiction than something, say, like Mount Rushmore, because, as we mentioned, of the way the greenery tends to surround it, like green, maybe just moss and stuff like that is creeping into mm-hmm. some of the surfaces on the statue. But you can also just see these tree branches and the forest beyond trying to creep in and surround the Buddha like a, <laughs> yeah. I don't know, like in, when you see the cartoon where uh, Snow White is surrounded by chirping birds and things, it's like the, the, the very life of the forest itself is coming in to hug and honor the Buddha. Yeah, well, it, it reminds me of something we, I, I guess it was the episode on biophilia where we talked about some of this. You know, I think you can, my, my read on, on it is that if you, if you look to any major religion, I think you can find environmental uh, trends within it, environmental messages within it. Mm-hmm. But as with any religion, it depends on who's handling it, right? Who's 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 manipulating it in some cases, or who is delivering the message of it, and and therefore, it, it any, any faith can take a, a you know a, a less environmental form. Yeah, the the dominion over the earth mentality versus the uh, harmony with the earth mentality, or right. the preservation of the earth mentality. Yeah, I mean. It's uh, it's very possible someone out there is making Buddhist arguments for uh, for, for the removal of vi- environmental regulations, but <laughs> but I have not personally run across it. If you have run across it, listener, uh, send it in because I would love to have that uh, that uh, you know, that added perspective. But in terms of just reshaping the earth, and it's worth pointing out that yeah, all major powers have done it and continue to do it. So you know we can look to examples of reshaped mountains and dammed rivers here in the United States. Uh, but I, but I also can't help but uh, think of the the Zaiping Pu Dam, 
which is actually located in Sichuan province as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was this is a large scale dam that some scientists have, you know, they've connected the dots here uh, between its massive reshaping of the earth and uh, some deadly earthquakes that have occurred in the region. Really? I, I'm always curious about the extent to which people can actually uh trace human behavior to the causation of earthquakes. I'm not saying I, mm-hmm. I never believe it happens, but I'm always curious, like, how, 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 with how much confidence can we really say that something we did caused an earthquake? Mm-hmm. You think scientists are pretty certain here? Well, it's something we could definitely discuss in a, in a later episode and, like, really break it apart. I mean, the mm-hmm. scientists who are, who are, who are arguing that this is taking place. Uh, so what we're talking about here is I'm sure they know better than I do. I don't mean to cast doubt on that. <laughs> well, it's it's not a it's not a, a fringe science uh, by right. any sense any sense, but it is uh, it's known as reservoir induced uh, uh, seismicity. Okay. Okay. So the the idea is that you have rapid changes in water pressure caused by flood uh, seasonal flood changes in reservoir levels. And this can activate already shaky ground and trigger an earthquake. So, for instance, the most uh, the famous example of this uh, is the, the Three Gorges Dam in China. Oh, yeah, the huge thing. Yeah, it's, so this is a massive – so you end up with a – well, of course, the way dams work, I think everybody's familiar with this. You, you dam a river and you end up with water on one side, right. a reservoir of water. And that's, you control the flow. Yeah, and that's that's a massive amount of water. That's a massive change. I mean, it's a change in mass. And uh, and so the idea with the three gorges here is that this uh, this reservoir ends up setting on two major fault lines, and uh, and that that can actually affect seismic activity. So it's not it's not a situation where it you can't really say it alone is causing the earthquake, mm-hmm. but it is influencing the factors that uh, that are at play in the causation of earthquakes. Okay, that, that's the argument. And well, tentatively, I believe it. I, I was speaking out of ignorance. No, 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 no. I, I mean, it's the kind of thing we could uh, take apart in a later episode for sure. But in the case of the Zaiping Pu Dam, this is a, a, a 315 million ton uh, water reservoir, and uh, it lies about 550 yards from a fault line uh, and three miles from the epicenter of the uh, the Sichuan earthquake that killed at least uh, reported 80,000 people in 2008. And that uh, those stats are according to the Telegraph. Food for for thought. Nobody's blaming this on the Buddha. <laughs> don't don't get me wrong. But and uh, and I and naturally I don't want I don't want to argue that there's a one to one comparison to be made between a, you know carving a sculpture out of a mountain and creating a you know massive uh, reservoir via the construction of a dam. But I think they both demonstrate this human ability and desire to to remake the world. And then how we end up rediscovering the fragility of the world in the process and realizing that, yeah, when you when you change the shape of a mountain, that's going to have an impact. When you create this massive reservoir, it's going to have an impact. Because in the case of uh, of, of a massive uh, reservoir created via a dam, you also have to count in pollution because you have water flowing into areas that were not – uh, previously submerged, and that might mean you uh, are introducing uh, uh, existing pollutants into the water. Uh, you have can have landslides, mudslides, weather changes. You have this uh, uh, what's called as the lake effect. So decreasing rainfall in the area around the reservoir, uh, there's a decrease there. While there's an increase in rainfall in the surrounding mountain regions. Hmm. On top of that, you can have drought. You can have a species loss. And you can have uh, the loss of historical relics as, uh, you know, an, an area that was, you know, previously above water is now below water on, you know, for the life of the dam. Yeah, that's something I've rarely even considered as a consequence of damming rivers. 
Uh, we actually have a HowStuffWorks.com uh, article uh, on the topic, so I'll have to link to that as well on the landing page uh, for this episode at StuffToBlowYourMind.com. All right, so there you have it. A uh, little, you know, introduction into, uh, I think, one of the more remarkable uh, statues in the world, uh, one that I have not seen in person, but one day I would I would very much like to. Maybe I can convince uh, uh, work to send me there. <laughs> uh, I'm glad you brought this up, Robert. I, I've... I didn't really know anything about this statue going in, and I, I think it's a fascinating work of art, and I, I too would like to see it one day. So, uh, how about you out there? Again, we'd love to hear from anyone who has, uh, who has actually ventured out and, and seen the Grand Buddha in person. What were your impressions? What do you think of the surrounding area? Uh, what do you think about other massive works of sculpture? Uh, you know, be it a freestanding sculpture or something carved out of the side of a mountain. Uh, what kind of effect did it have on you? I'm wondering what great works of art are going to be, you know, great, great sculptures that exist today or will exist soon are going to be visited by tourists in another 1,200, 1,300 years. Hmm. Like, what's the Grand Buddha that was built recently? Huh. Hmm. Or I guess the Grand Buddha of the future, but not the Buddha of the future, not the Maitreya. Okay. Uh, Sorry, I'm being confusing. (laughs) What's the sculpture out there today that people are going to be coming to with this much intensity more than a thousand years from now. Well, there are some very large statues in the United States that I don't think get a lot of press because they're just such recent constructions. I want to say there's a, it's a, in Florida, there is a, a, a Pegasus battling a dragon. And it's, I want to say it's like the second or third largest statue in the United States, mm-hmm. but it's not historic. It's, it's a very recent creation and, it's just a dragon and a Pegasus, so I don't know. Maybe people will grow more attached to it, and and it will uh, it will become like a tr- something we're truly proud of, and we'll start putting it on money or something. But uh, for the time being, I guess you know the, the Statue of Liberty, Mount Rushmore, these are still going to be the the big attractions here in the United States until we build that five thousand foot Nixon we've been talking about. So head on over to StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find all the podcast episodes. You will find blog posts, videos, and links out to our social media accounts, such as Twitter, Facebook, Tumblr, Instagram, you name it. Facebook is a great place to, to check us out, though, especially since we have a new discussion module group that is set up. And that's just a place where you can you can chime in with some longer-form comments on recent episodes uh, and stir up some discussion with other listeners and, and even uh, your your humble hosts here, uh, you know, without it just being, you know, instantly lost in that uh, Facebook timeline. Yeah. So if you're interested, request to join. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us directly, as always, you can do it the old fashioned way and email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.